<clears throat> we've spent, we've slowed down a lot to consider Christ as the mediator. The reason we've slowed down so much is because this is a not only an important topic for any system of theology to go together. Yeah, there we go. I'm styling. Um, not only an important topic for any system of theology, but it's, it's a joyful topic for us to consider, isn't it? That there really is a mediator of the new covenant that really purchased our salvation, that really did everything that we failed to do in our covenant with God that we're born into, and he still continues to do it and will do it perfectly. Last week, we looked at the, the willingness of Jesus Christ to do what he did, that he was not an unwilling subject thrust into a situation that he had no control over, but he was willing. And just as a, an aside to that, something that I know Brother Matt really likes, uh, Providence, uh, the mystery of Providence by John Flavel. One of the things that's really wonderful to think about with Christ's willingness to come into this world is that Christ as, as God chose the circumstances into which he would come into this world. He chose to be born in a, not in Caesar's house, but in a little outpost of the Roman Empire in Bethlehem. He chose in his providence that he would be called a Nazarene, a term of derision, chose to be poor for us. Christ in his willingness not only was passive and accepted all God would give to him, but he, he chose those things not for himself, but for, for us. And so today, we're going to consider what Jesus Christ accomplished through his humiliation, specifically through the cross. Why did Christ die on the cross? What did that accomplish for his people? And then, in paragraph 6, we're going to consider how these benefits of Christ, we're going to try to do three paragraphs, are retroactive, meaning that the Old Testament saints were saved in the exact same way that we are saved in the New Testament, by faith in the promised coming Messiah. And then paragraph 7, it might not fit very well, and we'll see if we get this far, that the mediation of Christ is done by the one person of Christ. And so we're going to try to consider not unnecessarily separating his divine and human natures. That's a lot to go through, I realize. But we'll, we'll do our best today. So, paragraph 5 of our confession says this, The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offer, offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance into the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given to him. And at the very beginning of this, we see that by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the, the willingness of Christ, especially with regard to his work of humiliation and exaltation. That that's the pattern of Christ's life. And this is, what is this most particularly pointing to? I've already told you, but I'll ask you. See if I need to repeat myself more. It's Christ's humiliation, isn't it? 
Because it's his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself which he offered up through the eternal spirit to God. And so we see both the active and passive parts of Christ's humiliation, his perfect obedience, that he kept the law for us in all of its ways. And just for a scripture to get our minds moving in the area of the Bible, Romans 5.19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. But Jesus not only kept the law perfectly for us, but as we've discussed many times, He offered up Himself through the eternal Spirit. And this is, again, a recap. Are there any Scripture references we can think of of Christ offering Himself up through the Spirit? It's true, yes. Hebrews 9.14 tells us how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God to cleanse your conscience from dead works and to serve the living God. And it's wonderful to think about the things that Jesus Christ has done for us, isn't it? That he truly was actively obedient for us and passively took the curse for us when he was on this earth. But the question that the confession now moves to is how that affects those who have faith in Jesus Christ. What are the benefits that God has given to us? And first, it's pointed Godward that he has fully satisfied the justice of God. Now, as we consider that, we know that in the midst and implied in all of that is that God is a just God. That His moral requirements that He gives to His creation, to His creatures to obey, out of goodness and love, He he demands that all of those things are kept by Him. And the breaking of His law is not just a mistake on our part, it's a transgression of who we are made to be. We're made to be not just things existing on a planet that can do good things separated from a relationship with God. We're created to be creatures and to give glory to God in everything that He does. But we don't do that. And so in all of our sin, rather than looking at it as just something that is a mistake or a mess up, We have to realize it is an offense against the God who has created us and made us. And more than that, the God who has promised to redeem us. And Jesus has fully satisfied that justice. And I think that we ought to think about that clearly. Not only has He satisfied a substantial amount of God's justice that might make it possible for you to obey a little bit of the law and to make it in yourself. He has absolutely fully satisfied everything that God required in the law for us. Romans 3.25 says this, talking about our Savior Jesus Christ, it says, whom God set forth as a propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Satisfaction, yes. A propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His 
righteousness because in his forbearance God passed over sins that were previously committed. Now this is going to be important as we consider the next paragraph. But when we read that sentence, that it demonstrates his righteousness. Whose righteousness does Christ's sacrifice represent? I'll read it again. Whom, Christ, God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. It's God's, right? It's to demonstrate God's righteousness. And, And then we have the reason for that given because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, that ought to draw our mind back to the Old Testament. should draw our mind to, to Noah, who sinned grievously after he got off the boat. should draw our minds to Abram, who more or less gave his wife over for the king of Egypt to have as he will with her in order that he may not be killed. And we could go on and on through that. It should remind us of even graver sins of Solomon, of Manasseh, And when we read that God forgave these men, if we read it that way, and I think we should, then we we have to ask, by what way did God, who is just, in forbearance, pass over former sins? And it is not by God putting His hands over His eyes, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. That the sins of all the elect through all time were placed on the Son of God. And He paid that. And it demonstrated God's righteousness. That's the important part that we have here. It fully satisfied the justice of God. And that only not, that not only means that I don't have to answer to God's legal courtroom, but it means that God is still just. God is still just. And more than that, He's proven Himself to be just. And we continue in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is a a radical concept. Because without a perfect mediator satisfying the justice of God, if we think about our sins being forgiven, we have to go back to the proverb that says it's an abomination to God to justify the sinner and to condemn the righteous. But that's exactly what we have happening on the cross. A willing participant condemned That God might justify the righteous. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, this is the theme of the Bible. That God's justice would be satisfied through the Savior. What other texts come to mind as we think of that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yes. Yes, and we're getting ahead of ourselves maybe a little with the Old Testament aspect, which is okay. But 
what's helpful for me is just some verses that have that same language of propitiation. Okay? So Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, in all things, He had to be made like His brethren. Why? That He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay? He's merciful and He he makes propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10, In this is love. We know this verse, don't we? Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And we, we have to come away with this, with these verses, to say that God really, truly has fully satisfied God's justice. And so when your conscience or the devil, those two things are indistinguishable most of the time, comes and tells you you are a sinner... You can say, I am a sinner. But Jesus Christ has fully paid the justice of God on my behalf. And God only saves sinners. I have faith in His Son, and I cling to the fact that He has fully saved me. This is one of the benefits that is given to us, the great benefit given to us, knowing that justice is appeased. But I just want to notice two words next in the confession. Not only the propitiation was purchased by God, but also procured reconciliation. Procured reconciliation. Now, it's one thing to consider that in an earthly setting that the courthouse burned down and my records are destroyed. Okay? Nobody has a record any longer of of my past sins and dealings. And the court case that was coming up where I was fearing I was going to be put in prison for the rest of my life for the things that I've done, that thing has been wiped out and made clean. But there is not right relationship restored between me and the one that I've offended, the one that brought that court case into being. But in the gospel... And what Jesus has done for us, He not only has made us in a, put us in a place where God's eternal wrath will no longer come down upon us, but we're actually in right fatherly and creaturely relationship with God again. He's reconciled two parties together. We were made in the Garden of Eden, not just as creatures to run around and do as we please, although not hurting one another and being nice to one another, From the moment that Adam was formed out of the dust, God in His verbal um, revelation to Adam went into covenant and relationship with Him. And we've broken that. But in the Gospel, not only are we free to say I'm not guilty, but that God is really and truly my Father. He really is my Father. He really does love me. And He continues to love me. And when I sin, I no longer fear that eternal judgment is coming on my head. What I fear is that God's fatherly displeasure would be upon me. Right? Just like our children that we think of. They can do and do do really sinful and wicked things, but I don't think that many of our children are afraid afraid that we're going to unsun them. Right? Or that we're going to make them 
not a hackworth anymore for the things that they've done. Because we they truly are in relationship with me. If we have faith, an abiding, continuing faith in Christ, we ought to be assured that God, the Son, has procured reconciliation for God's people. Um, any thoughts? Questions? Any texts that come to mind? That we've reconciled to God. A relationship has been restored that, that we have broken through our sin. Oh, there we go. That's my first one. Get it, Joe? Oh, it's okay. I'll read it. I'll read it. 2 Corinthians 5.18 Now all things are of God. Notice, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And what's the next part? Has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That... Isn't that an amazing thing to say? Uh, I'll, I'll finish reading verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is the Gospel. Right? That, me, and, me and Brother Caleb and uh, Scott and uh, several of us, I think, were talking about this several weeks ago. That the word that we preach, the gospel that we preach, is one of being reconciled to a father and not merely forgiven of sin. Okay, We have the word of reconciliation that we preach that you are not in right relationship with the God who made you, but the gospel puts you back into right relationship again. It, it's much like the prodigal son. Where the father ceases his son coming and the father picks up his robe and runs after him and accepts him back again. What other verses can we think of? There you go. Go ahead, brother. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Mm. Amen. Amen. He's, notice, he has reconciled. Jesus has done it all in the body of his flesh through death to present you wholly blameless and above reproach in his sight. Um, it's okay. Mm. Amen. Adoption. What a wonderful thing we'll be considering in a few weeks. We're truly adopted into God's family. Brother. Romans 5.10. What does it say? Amen. Amen. And, and again, this is just another aspect of the gospel that we ought to consider. Christ, in His passive obedience as mediator of the covenant, has fully satisfied the justice of God. And although it's not in our text in the confession, He has fully reconciled the relationship between those who are estranged from Him through sin by faith in Him. Okay? And not only that, this sacrifice has purchased for us an eternal inheritance. We see that. It's purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father 
has given him for all those whom the Father has given him. And as we come here, what our minds are drawn to once again, and I don't think can be drawn to too much, is that we really truly are in union with Christ. We're, we're one with Him. That just as Christ is reconciled to the Father, right through sin He had a, a turning away briefly of the Father's eyes from Him, but He is fully reconciled, so we are fully reconciled in Jesus Christ. And He as the Son rightly has an inheritance that God has promised to give to him. But we share in that inheritance. Now, in the Old Testament, this inheritance was pictured in types and shadows, especially in the kingdom of Israel or the people of Israel, that they would inherit a land. Um, this was promised to Abraham. But as we, as we look into the book of Hebrews, we see in part how Abraham interpreted that great promise to his descendants. We see in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he called out to go to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Right? He was looking to a heavenly, eternal inheritance that was pictured in that land promise. So, where do we see that Christ has purchased for us this eternal inheritance? Colossians 1, yes, yeah, we're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of his dear son. What other language of inheritance can we think of? Ms. Heather, 1 Peter 1, yes. Our, our uh, inheritance that doesn't fade away, is that what we're looking for? Okay, yeah. For, Oh, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. And oh, it, it's just wonderful me, for me to think about this. That Jesus Christ, when he was on earth and he was preaching to his apostles before he would leave, he looked at them in John 14 and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I, I'm paraphrasing now, I most surely am going to come and receive you to myself. Right? That in the preparation of the internal inheritance, it not just reveals a thing that we're going to have, it reveals the heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, and the heart of the Spirit to prepare it for us, to keep it for us, and to bring us into it on that last day. This is really good news. Because here, the church, it seems like we don't have any inheritance often. Anything that we gain, even, it fades away. The church can go and proselytize and evangelize and even culture can be changed and maybe become more prosperous. But as we look throughout human history, it's all very fleeting and fading. But there is an eternal inheritance that's going to be given to us. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is you don't have to earn it. You don't have to 
You don't have to keep the covenant as Israel did in order to, to get that inheritance and to keep it. That physical, earthly inheritance. But Jesus, as the new Israel, has done everything for us. And we will receive everything that He has given. Hebrews 9.15 And for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And we'll, and we'll continue moving. Um, but we ought to see that those three benefits are really strongly highlighted. And we ought to have those in our minds that we can be assured that we have nothing to pay of our sins before God. He really does not take account of our sins anymore. He doesn't mark our iniquities. Therefore, we can stand before Him. He truly has reconciled us. We truly are in right relationship. And He promises eternal kingdom that we will be with Him forever and enjoy that reconciliation forever. Okay? So, I want us to consider just secondly and briefly... There's a retroactive nature to this. And Brother Joey has brought this up already from Hebrews chapter 11. That although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after His incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world. We are not going to make it through paragraph 7. But... We we should see that the atonement of Jesus Christ took place in history. That when we consider God and who He is, He has chosen to make a world that has time, that not as the pagans would imagine was circular or cyclical, but linear. And that God had prescribed that a certain period of time, a certain day in the calendar that God had made, that Jesus Christ would come into history and pay the price for the sins of God's people. Okay, But we shouldn't so narrow that as to think that after the cross, that is the only time when people had faith in Christ and had their sins forgiven, reconciliation to the Father, and all of those things. Okay, It, It took place in time, as Brother Matt's already quoted, when the fullness of time had come, right? God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might save those who are under the law. And so, what we have to see is, it's through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and life that through that, all of that virtue and efficacy was communicated to the elect in all ages. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that the people in the Old Testament weren't saved by works or a mixture of grace and works, that they were saved by, by faith in Jesus, that they were saved by faith alone. That's right. That's right. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We see in Adam and Eve, don't we? That there's a promise given. Just as we've already said, God formed Adam out of the ground and immediately entered into covenant with him. When Adam broke the law, he immediately entered into a covenant of grace with him. Okay? And gave him a promise of a coming seed. And more than that, he, he slayed, slayed, slayed 
an animal in the garden and covered Adam and Eve, symbolizing covering their sins. Okay? They were to have faith in that coming one. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Noah was said to be a man of righteousness, but Hebrews 11 again gives us the apostolic perfect interpretation of this. And it tells us that even Noah was saved by faith alone. We see here in verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Comes by faith. And we know that 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 ark moment, Peter even tells us, was a a type of baptism. It's a type of baptism. It, It looked forward to Jesus Christ. We, we see this in Abraham. We also see it clearly in David, don't we? David's the one who wrote Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, right? Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not count his sin. David had the same faith and the same blessings given to him by faith. And the question is, and we've already dipped into this a little bit, how were those promises communicated. Certainly it was through promises, wasn't it? It was through promises. And it was through types and sacrifices as well. Okay? So, the type of baptism, of world judgment in Noah, but also the saving of his household, right? This is a a type that pointed forward to Christ. We could think of many types of this nature. It would take us probably all day. I want to at least get through this paragraph, though. Sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, when they would bring a a bull or a goat to the altar and they would be sacrificed, they'd lay their hands upon it and it would be sacrificed, the priest would pronounce forgiveness of sins in that way. Now, we can look in that in two different ways, but what we should see is that that sacrifice was a promise of God that God was going to send a true Lamb of God into the world to take away the sins of the world. Okay, That was a promise through that sacrifice. The the old school guys would say that the uh, sacrifices of the Old Covenant were sacraments. Okay, That they looked upon those things as visible words given and they believed them. Not that the bull or the goat in its blood took away any sin because Hebrews tells us that's impossible... But it looked forward to Christ, the true Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And by faith, knowing that God would provide that, they were saved. Now, they didn't necessarily know exactly how that would look, but they knew God's promises. And they believed God's promises, even as shadowy as they might have been. Um, And two texts that I think are really shocking to me, especially when I started coming to this church nearly 10 years ago, which is hard to believe. Galatians 3.8. I mean, this, this text, I remember reading it one day. I was working at the city mission, and it was just one of those texts, like, I never read the words of this text or something. I scanned over it somehow. But speaking about what God told Abraham in Genesis 12, Galatians 3.8 says, and the scripture 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. God preached the gospel to Abraham in that promise. Uh, Hebrews 4.2, talking about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Notice what's said very clearly. Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and as we know from the biblical history, they died in the wilderness, but Hebrews 4.2 says this, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith in those who heard it. Okay? The, the consistent witness of the New and Old Testament is that the saints of the Old Covenant were saved by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ just as we are today. I think I'm going to stop there and we'll, we'll try to get through paragraphs 7 through 9 next week. Um, do you have any questions or thoughts, brother? Yes, yeah. Yeah, amen. Signifying Christ that, you know, it's going to be on him. Yeah, amen. Anything else? Okay, well, let's pray. Lord, we, we come before you. Uh, man, what wonderful promises to, to people like us, God. And I'm more ashamed, Lord, that I forget these things and, and, and when I remember them, I don't relish in them like I, I should relish in them, God. I, I pray that the doctrines that we learn, hopefully by your grace, learn in this study will, will lead us to love you more, Lord, and to know you better. I, I pray that you would be glorified and we thank you for a Savior that even now sits in heaven and prays that all of us would receive all of the full benefits of the covenant of grace, not just legally, but in, in experience and reality. God, grow us in Him. Um, give us confidence in boasting, not in ourselves, God, but boasting in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord. I, I thank You, God. It's a beautiful thing to me to know that the religion of salvation by faith in Christ alone is not just 2,000 years old, or 200 years old, it is from the beginning of the world, from the very first moment that Adam sinned. Um, the same gospel has been preached with differing, differing clarity, but, but God, the same gospel has been preached. And we, we pray that you would be glorified today and help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.